Our guest today is not the average hiker when you're thinking about going for a hike. Patty was teaching elementary inner city school for many years, attended journalism school at age 60, writing about her travels in many national publications. At age 68, she had to overcome her own fears of mortality and leapt out of her comfort zone to set off on a three-month solo volunteering and trekking trip to Nepal. Patty hopes to inspire others to step out of their comfort zone, overcome their fears, and make a difference. You'll be blown away by her courage and the difference Patty made in so many people's lives. Please share this episode with as many people as you can to help with Patty's cause to support education in Nepal. Let's dive into today's episode. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength to lead a vibrant life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of women over 50 around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies, and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and sustainable, so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring women who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst their best life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Today, I'm joined by Patty Shales Lefkos, a Canadian journalist, author, Himalayan volunteer, Trekker and Humanitarian. Her book, Nepal One Day at a Time, One Woman's Quest to Teach, Trek, and Build a School in the Remote Himalayas was published in January of 2020. Patty is also a freelance writer and author based at the Silver Star Mountain Resort in British Columbia, Canada. Her articles have appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, the Elevation Outdoors, and various Canadian and international publications. So welcome to the show today, Patty. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to meet you and have a chance to chat. Yes, absolutely. So tell my listeners who Roy Rogers is that travels with you. Oh, <laughs> well, when I was four, and we lived on a, a remote island in northern Ontario for just uh, summers. We had a collie dog, not a purebred, just a, a mutt, run to the litter. And I was very fond of Roy Rogers' comic books at that time. He was my hero. And so when we got this dog, I jumped up and down and said, we'll call him Roy Rogers, Roy Rogers. And I was the youngest in the family, so I guess they went with that. And so. I called, we called him Roger and he lived to be 17. He was an integral part of our family. And then I, um, well, when my, actually when my dad was uh, dying, he was in hospice and uh, he had lost the little dog that he used to take with him places. And so I bought him a little stuffed dog that looked kind of like Roger and I took it to the hospital for him to have in his last days. And then when he did die, I got him back and he goes everywhere with me. Yeah, I love that. I love that when I read in your book that you took Roy Rogers with you, I'm like, you have to tell that little bit. <laughs> Somebody who hasn't read the book yet doesn't know, but the parts that I read, I was like, we got to talk about Roy Rogers. That's an important <laughs> part for her. Well, you know, it was, and he's up on my bed right now. He's always with me. He is in my backpack every time we travel. Um, when I'm on my own, it's, um, in, you know, particularly important to have him with me. It's a bit of home with me. It is. It is. Now, 
When you travel with Roy Rogers, do you talk to him? Oh, absolutely. And I put him and when when I get to say a trekking lodge and I open up my sleeping bag on the, the bunk, whatever, wherever I am, I always put him, get him out of the bag and put him on top so he can see a view out the window. Oh, I love I'm really crazy, but that, that's what I do. <laughs> and when I have him sticking out the back of my pack sometimes, the Nepali kids, um, the children in Nepal really like that. They think it's funny that someone my age would have a stuffed toy with them. I can imagine. That is awesome. <laughs> now, Patty, what kind of kid were you? Speaking of your childhood, were you as adventurous and as outgoing as you are now, or were you different then? Um, I was pretty quiet as a kid, but um, we, as I say, when I was a year old, we cho uh, we chose this island. It was um, it was a wedding present actually from my grandfather to my dad, and so my dad took mom and three kids and later Roger to this island every summer. And my dad was um, a football player, you know, and a businessman, but he was also a canoe guide during his um, during his university years. He worked at Algonquin Park in Canada as a canoe guide for summer camps. And so he kind of ran it like a summer camp. And that's my next book. How did I get to be this kid? And I think it was just growing. It was mostly growing up on that island every summer and doing all the things the boys could do. My brother and sister and I all did the same kind of things. We all fought to row the boat, run the motor, uh, paddle the canoe. We all wanted to be first and swim the farthest. And so I guess that's how it all started. Oh, that is so cool. Because sometimes we change over the years and we may be really quiet and or we're really active and suddenly something happens in life where we completely change and do something different. But you had a first career and your first career was as a teacher, a consultant, an advocate for inner city kids. What drew you to that? vocation? Um, you know, I, when I was a child, when I was 10, I said I would be a writer. And when it got to be the time to go to university, at that point, Ryerson in Toronto, where you went for journalism, was a college, not a university. So my dad said, well, why don't you get a degree and then go? So I went to University of Toronto, got a degree. And then at that point, I got interested in teaching and got into that. And I absolutely loved it. And I think I was never terribly outgoing and confident, but when I got to the point of teaching kids in inner city schools and being their principal, it, um, it made me put myself forward because I had to speak for them. There were so many children uh, who were refugees, who lived in poverty, who didn't have a voice. Their parents couldn't have a voice. They didn't even speak English then. And so myself and a bunch of colleagues really put ourselves forward for those children and those families. And it's kind of easier to do it when it's not for yourself, it's for someone else, for me anyhow. So that helped me learn to speak and gain confidence. Mm -hmm. I can see that. It's like, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm an, an immigrant. I mean, people say I'm an expat, but that puts you in a different category of thinking in my point of view. I am an immigrant from Germany. And uh, I mean, when I came here to the U.S. 30 years ago, I mean, I spoke English, but I spoke British English. And I got here and I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? I have no idea. It is very different. Yes. Especially now closer in Canada to British English, not so much in the in parts of the United States, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, but it was just funny. I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. I speak English. I knew it. And I watched TV for literally a whole month to get the hang of the slang and the words. And but being even, you know, coming from India or wherever you people come from and have just the basics, I can imagine it's really tough to get your kids into school and and get them what they need without somebody that's there to help and support. Mm -hmm. It was um you know, not many people know, but when I was the principal of my first school in the downtown east side in Vancouver, I was in the lowest socioeconomic neighborhood in all of Canada. And then five blocks away downtown, all the stockbrokers' offices and the law offices were there. But the best thing about them being so close was they heard about us and ended up supporting. And there's been a bre good breakfast program in those schools for years because of the stockbrokers. 
So nice. it all worked out, but it was such a huge dichotomy, the poverty and the wealth, um, that somebody had to say something. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't speak up, nobody hears <laughs> us. We can't assume that people know or, yeah. or can read it exactly. in our faces that we need help. <laughs> Now let's change gear a little bit, which ties into the rest of your incredible story. How did you meet your husband? Oh. <laughs> well, as I said, um, probably earlier, he was a mountaineer, um, a certified mountain guide, and then he became a teacher, but he continued with his outdoor and wilderness activities and climbing. And he ended up teaching uh, a course at Capilano College in Vancouver, and it was in the Wilderness Leadership Program. And I, as a young teacher, wanted to be able to take kids into the outdoors, but the principal I had didn't think that was good. I, I wasn't qualified. So I went to take the Wilderness Leadership course, and my husband, Barry, was my teacher in Wilderness First Aid. And I always tell the story that I looked up at him and my friend, sitting beside me who was married said, oh, he's really cool. And I said, I don't think so. Red hair and glasses. I don't know. He's really smart, but you know, I don't think so. Well, our, our 40th anniversary is in a couple of weeks, so I guess it worked. <laughs> Something must have been cute about him. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so is he the responsible for you becoming an outdoor junkie? Um, that plus my upbringing in the summers but yeah it made a big difference because then we really started to it, it, you know he's done some amazing cli um, climbs Denali and uh, Logan Mount Logan in Canada but uh, we started doing a lot more skiing and backcountry skiing and canoe trips and uh, long backpacking trips so so when and he was very patient with me all the way <laughs> well you need to be patient I used to rock climb for when i was dating this gentleman yeah. and uh, that took <clears throat> quite a while to to learn the technique and be able to deal with the heights i'm still not very good with heights yeah. mm -hmm. and uh but i learned how to rock climb which later then was fantastic because my son at that time uh became a rock climbing instructor himself at the gym oh, mm -hmm. so the two of us would then go out after this relationship was done uh would go out together and we would rock climb so oh, yeah, it was really awesome. But you and Barry started really seriously traveling in about at about 2009. Is that right? Uh, or eight in 2000. Well, for 2007, his final trip with the school before he retired, where he was a head teacher, his final trip was to lead uh, eight teenagers and some parents and helpers on a three week uh, paddling trip on the Yukon River. So that was my first really long paddling trip. And these kids were fabulous. They did all their own cooking. He had trained them so well. They were good paddlers by then. And then in 2009, we went to England. We thought, okay, if we're going to do international trips, let's start with a, one that has um, where people speak English, just kind of a shakedown cruise. And so we did um, the west half of the coast to coast in England. That was nine days, just the, mount, the, the mountainous area. That's what we wanted to do. And I had never backpacked in more than three days at the time. So we did nine days on that, and that sounded good. So we kind of took a big, uh, a giant leap forward and went to uh, Tibet. Right <laughs> yeah. from there. Yeah, well, no, actually we came back in the next year. Um, that trip in England was about three weeks. So we thought, okay, we could do a little bit more. At three weeks, you kind of either go home or you continue on and then you're there for a while. So we went to Tibet, went to Beijing, then Lhasa, and then drove five days increasing in altitude west in Tibet. And then we did the sacred uh, Kora or walk around Mount Kailash. And the top uh, altitude on that one is 18,600. And I'd never gone to altitude, Barry had before. But we went very slowly and uh, I was fine. Now, and, um, why Nepal? Well, that was Tibet. And then Nepal, well, we love Tibet. We love the Tibetan people, the Buddhist culture, but you can't really volunteer in Tibet because it's part of China. And there are so many rules. So we thought, what's the closest thing? So then we thought, okay, next time we'll go to Nepal. And then when we went to Nepal, we went for three months and did four major tracks during that time. 
Wow. And then we got to know these, we had just the two of us and a guide and porter, and we got to know these kids so well that we wanted to go home to their village with them. And we were about to do that when Barry had an angina attack and we had to be airlift evacuated by helicopter out of uh, Namche Bazaar and the Everest base camp circuit. Wait a second. Wait yep. a second. He's <laughs> just like, you guys are in the mountains. Yes. And you, you're, you're in this crazy climate and steep. And we want to know more about this. So how does that happen? How, did, how do you get to rally back all that? Well, we had done, we'd already done uh, the Upper Mustang Track and we'd done the Annapurna Circuit and into Annapurna Base Camp. And, you know, in between tracks, we'd go to a hotel for three days and do the laundry and clean up. And then we were on the Everest Base Camp Track. We'd been to Everest Base Camp. We were on the way back. And after dinner, the night, second last night, he had this problem and he wasn't sure if it was uh, reflux or angina or whatever. So they airlifted us to Kathmandu. And he had a stent put in one of his arteries at midnight on his birthday that night. Actually, uh, yeah, it would have been yesterday in 2011. Yeah. So I'm assuming, I, sorry? I'm assuming you had uh, like travel insurance. Absolutely. Very good travel insurance. We also got an amazing doctor, a doctor from India who was in Nepal training cardiologists. And he was absolutely fabulous. Um, we're so lucky. I think we got, frankly, faster service than we might have had in at home in Canada. Wow. And so then we had to stay 10 days and he had to rest, And but we wanted to go back. Uh, and he's fine now. As I said, he's out skiing right now. So we wanted to go back, but um, we needed, um, you know, we weren't, we wanted to go back and see the kids' village and visit um, because we'd heard so much about their families. Mm -hmm. However, while we were planning the trip, Barry ruptured his Achilles tendon by running with our grandchild. <laughs> and so that's when I decided to go by myself. So let me ask you, on your first trip when you guys went together, how old were you both? Uh, 65. 65, okay. Yeah. And so when I went back on my own, it was just short of my 68th birthday. So the listeners, listen, I have one more, one more interesting tidbit for you. So there's this woman from Canada who's really hardy and she's out there and she's trekking and she's doing all these things. She's helping um, inner city kids and writes these articles. But she also, before she does some of that later stuff that we're gonna talk about in a minute, she also said, heck, I'm 60 and I wanna be a travel writer. So mm -hmm. she went back to school and yes. I'm going to learn to become what I mean, I'm almost 60 that when I when I read this, I was like, huh, I could do that because I love traveling. I'm not a good writer, but I can learn how to write. Yes, you can. Well, I, you know, as I said earlier, when I was 10, I declared that I would be a writer. So and never got around to it. So I thought, OK, when I retire, I'll go to journalism school. So I went for a, a whole year and all the kids, the kids in my class were about 25. But uh, they helped me with technology and I helped them because I had a lot of good connections in the city for interviews and we're still friends, a lot of us. So that, uh, that was really fun. It was, it was a hard year, um, but it was really fun. And then we moved up to our ski house and in, I started pitching articles at Silver Star. Yeah. Yeah. Silver Star. Right. Now you said that very ruptured is Achilles, but something happened to you. And I read this in your book that you went to your yoga class and mm -hmm. snowing outside and you had your yoga mat and you walked into the yoga class and then something happened. Tell us about it. Well, I was thinking about going. Very ruptured as Achilles. I didn't know if I could go by myself. I really, I needed to find some way to figure it out for myself, I guess. So I went to my friend Jillian's yoga class and it wasn't just a yoga class. It was a special class of uh, kind of uh, organizing your intentions and figuring out what was holding you back and what did you really want. And we went through a bunch of exercises that evening and that gave me the courage to come home and talk to Barry and say, you know, I know you can't go now, 
but I think I need to go because I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> and you know, my my sister had been diagnosed with dementia, and she was just a few years older and had been a yoga instructor and very strong. And suddenly, she can't do things. My best friend had cancer. She beat it, but she had cancer. And I was almost 68, and I thought something could happen to me, and I might never get to do this. And I really want to volunteer in the village where the boys were from. Do you? And Mary supported me totally in going. Do you remember what you thought at that yoga class? What you told the group? When you uh, that, that I would be a travel writer. Yep. And I would go ahead and do those things. Yeah. I yourself. Yeah. And that was <laughs> the most profound uh, sentence in that. What do you, when you stood up in your book and you told the group that I'm going to be a travel writer, traveling solo. That was such a powerful moment, I thought. And to, to really stand, step up to your, to your needs and want of what you wanted to be. And you actually said you wanted to be a confident solo traveler, not somebody who's chickening out at every little corner. And uh, some of this in your book, I'm like, whoa, what I want to do, this is really steep here. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing is, though, I mean, yes, it was very risk taking. And it took me a while to work through all the fears that I had. But one thing I did was um, not only um, request, but I really demanded of the trekking company that knew us well after a three month trip that I still have the same guide. Mm -hmm. And I trusted Raj totally. Um, and it proved to be true. It, it was true. He was right there at the airport. The airport in Kathmandu is bizarre at night. It's crazy. There's so many people outside waiting to give you a ride, et cetera, et cetera. Raj was right there. And Raj never left my side unless I told him it's fine. You know, once once you're out of the city, once you're out trekking, it's fine. But we were always kind of in sight of each other, or he let me know where he'd be, and I did the same. So, yeah, yeah he's a pretty amazing guy. No, you left the yoga class. I'm going to go back to this. You went home. I would have been sweating bullets. How do I tell it to my child, basically, in this case, your husband? How was his reaction? Well, for one thing, it was the next morning. And uh, I had kind of thought about it. I asked him to sit down and talk to me. And, you know, I was crying. And I don't cry. He always says, I'm the strongest of my siblings. I don't cry that easily. And he just said, after tears and all the things I wanted to do, his statement was, it sounds like this is really important to you. I think you should go. And so that was it. And then he's, you know, he was great. He helped me, he got me a, an altitude watch that was small enough for my wrist and uh, helped me plan my packing and, uh, you know, and oh, help me get a um, a nice light camera mm -hmm. that I could, and then he set it on the highest resolution possible, and I got great photos. Um, the cover of my book is one of my photos. Is so, it? Yes, really good. Yeah. So he was extremely supportive and helpful. So when you pack, your trip was three months going to be right. Mm -hmm. What? How do you pack for something like this? I know that not. Uh, many people are extreme athletes or want to go for that long, but I just want them to get a feel of that you just didn't take a pair of undies and your credit card and off you went. There's yeah. really serious planning involved when you're yes. trekking. Tell us a little bit about what you brought and what you thought you needed or what is important because you've had some experience of trekking before. So what would go in your one, maybe two backpacks? Um, no, you have one backpack. And then a duffel bag, and the porter cup carries the duffel bag. So, uh, gee, important things in your day pack. You need all your meds. Uh, I don't have any medications, but you know, when you go on that kind of trip, you take altitude medication, um, headache stuff, stuff for diarrhea. Um, I hardly ever use it, but you have to have it with you. You have to get your shots first from a travel med doctor as well. So you go and get all of that taken care of. And then essentials in your backpack include Roger, of course, but also um, for squat for uh, squat toilets in a developing country. I always have 
uh, toilet paper with me in my day pack, not off in with the porter, but in my day pack, um, hand sanitizer, and um, a headlamp because there's no lighting in lots of places. And then down at the bottom, I always keep my passport with me, of course, but down at the bottom of my day pack, I have um, a, um, a Xerox copy of all of my documents. Um, so it's separate. The other stuff is around my waist. And then, um, you know, you have to have stuff in your day pack for all kinds of weather. Rain pants, a rain jacket, a fleece, stuff you can layer up. It doesn't do any good to have uh, extra clothing and have it in your duffel bag. And it rains in the porters two hours ahead of you. The guide stays with you. The porter does not always. Oh. So you have to have that stuff with you. And then in the big duffel, well, in the duffel bag, I had two duffel bags because you're allowed two. One I was using for trekking. The other was full of school supplies because I was going to teach it. I was going to volunteer teach at the village. Um, the last time I went, I had a second duffel totally full of toothbrushes, 600 toothbrushes that people had donated that I was taking to different schools and uh, they thought I was crazy at the airport, but there you are. And you probably uh, donated all of them, I bet. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the in the big pack, in the duffel bag that you take with you, you do have, you know, maybe one other change of clothing. I always leave a clean uh, a clean set of clothing at the hotel in Kathmandu, and then you know you can come back and that's there for you. So you have maybe one other set of clothing, and you wash as you go. And you know what, the Nepali kids, the porters um, and the guides are absolutely amazing about washing their own clothes. There's a really good example of how you should do it and your socks. And if you go, if you bulk up on anything, it's extra socks. Comfort on your feet is incredibly important, of course. Are there leeches? And then, pardon me? Are there leeches, Patty? You know, they say there are, but I've never encountered one. And I've spent a total of nine months and four trips. I've never encountered a leech, thankfully. I think it's worse if you go in the rainy season, monsoon, but uh, no. Yeah. Um, the other essential, frankly, is mini chocolate bars. You always have to have these for when you get to the top of a high pass. It's important to have things to celebrate. So I always take mini chocolate bars. And then I take uh, maple leaf cookies for serving at schools for tea, tea time. Okay. Um, gee, I mean, four, four pairs of underwear, probably. No, five or six pairs of socks. Um, I don't know, it all seems to fit in somehow. Somehow, now. And the camera gear and, you know, your camera batteries and all of that stuff that goes with it. Yeah, are the batteries rechargeable? And how do you recharge them? Because I'm sure that there's not just a plug-in well, at the lodges, there's a plug-in generally, so that's okay. And you take all your adapters um, for different countries. Um, we also, when we go together, Barry has a solar charger that he can put on the outside of his backpack. Oh. And then he can have that. Oh, and the other thing in the day pack, essential, your journal and extra pens. You can't always get pens when you're out in the, you know, in the wilderness. And if your pen runs out, you're messed up, so... I do a lot of journal writing so I can have all of the details I need. And I interviewed a lot of different people in all the villages to find out how tourism was affecting them. And also to get advice about teaching and, and helping the village that asked me for help. Now you have all this stuff. How the heck do you get fit to carry all this? I mean, you gotta get it to the airport, schlep it from the conveyor belt somewhere. So how do you get, and then you have to hike all these hikes. How did you physically prepare for the trip? Um, probably the best would be cross-country skiing with a pack and uh, not just going downhill, climbing as well. And going out for, it doesn't have to be fast, but going out for extended periods of time. So two or three hours. Um, just take lots of water, make sure there's some weight in your pack, even if you don't need it and uh, just get out there and do it and practice good because i'm thinking all right push-ups uh well, that too yoga in the morning and you know a bit of strength training and stuff i and stretching i never do enough of that but uh, that's what everybody says so mm -hmm. but but now let's get into your solo trip 
2015 or right 14 14 yeah. is the year you set off for three months you got your stuff packed you kissed your husband goodbye <laughs> you are at the airport wherever you left from in canada and off you went with all your stuff mm -hmm. tell us more about the trip your mission and some of the things that you encountered along the way and you mentioned the bathrooms already so tell us more about this how does this go for somebody who wants to dive into your world or get a little bit of a taste of your traveling and your volunteering at the school uh, well i started out um, i flew from vancouver to hong kong and i stayed in hong kong for three days and i went on a kayak uh, outing with a kayak club one day and that was really fun. I got to know some interesting people and see where I'm not a city person, neither is my husband. So we got to see a bit of Hong Kong from the outdoor perspective. And it also gave me a little bit of a rest after the long, first long flight, which is about 13 hours. And then it's about four and a half hours to Kathmandu. And I got in at night. That's when the flight gets in. Raj was there to get me. And we had a few days shopping for school supplies in Kathmandu and then headed out to the village. It takes seven hours over some really pothole dirt roads to get out to the village. And we set up camp. We, Raj set up camp and the cook, I had a cook. Um, some people that volunteer in the villages uh, stay in homes, but I was not able to do that. I have a bit of asthma and they cook inside because there's, they just got electricity. So we had a cook in one tent and then I had a little tent for marking, you know, marking books at night and reading and eating. And then I had a little yellow dome tent for sleeping. And then we were right beside the school and the school had one Western toilet, which was reserved for me, but I had to climb up this terrible stairway to get to it. So uh, that was uh, very interesting. I learned- They set it they set up just for you, Patty. Yeah, well, it was there, but they, Reserved it for me. And reserved it for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other challenging, well, the many challenging things, but the other challenging thing is learning how to to um, have a quotes shower because there's one tap in the village alone. So you get um, a wrap, they call it a lungi, and you wrap it around and you go to the tap, and then you have to somehow try to wash above and below and your hair and everything. And I took a bit of a slide there. That was interesting. But uh, it's, you know, I wanted to get cleaned up. That's all you can do. Uh, and the water's freezing because it's coming out of the spring. But it, um, the weather was very hot. It was about 35 degrees, so it was fine. Um, the school was, it had support. This school had support from um, the Rotary Club in Warunga, Sydney, Australia. And so it was considered a good school, but a good school was terribly shocking to me, knowing what schools in the, in North America are like. They had small classrooms, nothing on. They were just cement, cement bunkers, uh, nothing on the walls because it would it would slide off with the humidity. Whiteboards that were falling apart, and uh, just wooden desks with three kids to a desk, and no school supplies. The first class had one eraser, and there were twenty. 23 grade twos in it so it was um it was pretty shocking the kids are fabulous absolutely wonderful and raj um at my insistence stayed in the class all the time because they start english in, in kindergarten but they really don't know much english by grade two so i was trying to teach english through songs and actions and uh, i had to learn a lot about how they taught it's very different it's very much rote learning and because I didn't have the language, I had to really watch the other classes and see. And I learned a lot. And Raj helped me a lot too. So when you're when you're there, you're thinking, I mean, why doesn't the government help? Well, you know, that's it. The government um, will, if if the village builds a school, they'll send two or three teachers. That's not enough. The villagers pay for the rest of the teachers. Now, the two or three teachers the government pays for are um, trained teachers the others may just have completed grade 10 on their own and know enough to you know and are good people and will for a very terrible salary will spend every day with the kids so yeah it's pretty shocking and there's no such thing as a teacher on call or a substitute teacher 
if a teacher is sick or has to go for training, when it's their turn to go to that class, it's empty. Wow. So, yeah. Then and you know, at first, at first I thought the school didn't start until 10 o'clock. And I thought, well, no wonder this is, they're not getting anywhere. What are they doing? And then I met my friend Sitala, who was uh, an English teacher. And then I realized that what Sitala had to do before she came to school was go to the village tap and get, oh no, first she had to go out and gather greens to feed the family buffalo and the goats. Then she had to go to the village tap and get water. Then she had to go home and start the fire and make breakfast um, in her husband's home or that, which is, you know, the wives go to the husband's home and live there. So she's making breakfast for the family, her son included. Then she has to get all cleaned up, get him cleaned up and come to school. So it's no wonder they didn't come till 10. So you're saying the men, like we just imagine, the men just sit around at home and are the... Oh, no, no. Her husband was actually in uh, Dubai, I believe. A lot of uh, Nepali young men go to the uh, Arab countries for work. So they go for a two-year contract. Mm -hmm. But still, the bride comes to the male's family home. So then she has to take care of his parents as well. Oh, now I get it. Okay. So she's there, you know, living in her husband's home. He's not even there. He was working very hard. I think he might have been in the military at that point, and then he was in um, Dubai. But yeah, they work very hard, but they're away, a lot of them. Wow, that is tough. And so how, in the little town where you were, what was it called? Uh, it was called Ratmate, which means red earth. Nice. Ratmate village, yeah. So that was your home base. Where is it in relation to anything bigger that maybe the, the listeners? Um, it's uh, seven and a half hours northwest of Kathmandu by four-wheel drive. Four-wheel yeah. drive. And I read climbing as well. You have to... And very dirt roads by the end. Wow. That's amazing. So when you're there, you live there in your tent. That's correct. Yeah. In the village. So in your, in your tent, you go out teaching, starting at 10 in the morning. And then you teach, I would assume probably to anybody who can make it. Uh, the kids are, they had a, when the school was um, at first, when they had a, you know, a one room stone school, a lot of the kids didn't come. When that school was built, all of the kids came from various surrounding villages. So some of them would walk an hour to get there. And it was, uh, there were 155 kids in the school when I was there. Wow, 155 kids? Mm -hmm. That is a lot. I mean, I mean, you know that the education is needed because otherwise these kids don't grow up to be the reading and doing math and other things you need to survive. I mean, not even yeah. talking about, oh, are you on Facebook today? It's, that's probably not something they're concerned about, I'm assuming. Uh, no. <laughs> well, that year, they just got electricity, uh, the year before, but it's very intermittent. Mm -hmm. So I took a, a boombox for teach, you know, to play CDs to help with my voice to teach these English songs. Well, first of all, the electricity didn't work most of the time. And then we thought we'll try batteries. And we bought this thing in Kathmandu. It wasn't really good quality. And then it kind of distracted me. We gave up and just, I did the singing myself. I used to do a lot of that when I was teaching, but my voice wasn't really in good shape for it, but that's all we could do. So yeah, you can't rely on the electricity at all. Wow. Um, they do have very good uh, cell phone reception though, in oh. most parts of Nepal and it's inexpensive. So uh, that is very helpful. Okay, so many people then have a phone? Uh, well, not in the village so much, but maybe a few of the families in Raj, my guide, had a phone. So that's how they keep in touch with their relatives, because um, the kids that are guides and porters might be gone from their wives, you know, three weeks out of four every during the trekking season. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned something and it ties in right now. And it, I know it doesn't quite fit to it because I want to follow up more in the school. But while we're at it. How has the trekking industry to the Himalayas and, and all that uh, uh, Everest affected the people that you came in contact with, Patty? Um, the people in this area are um, 
more near a mountain called Mamaslu. It's in an area called Gorkha, mm -hmm. and it's quite remote. And these people are Hindu. 80% of Nepal is Hindu, 20% is Buddhist. The Buddhist area is in the upper space camp, Everest area. That's the Solupambu area. But my, the area where I spent most of this time was in uh, Gorkha and the Hindu area. So that was the culture. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm reading uh, reports about that Mount Everest is overrun by tourists and, and trash is everywhere and things like that. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, of all the treks we've done, we liked the Mount Everest trek the least. It's very crowded. The lodges are crowded. You have groups of 30 people that don't say namaste or hello. They're all just, it's very different. That's why we preferred, it was a little bit more cost, but not huge to go just my husband and I or just me with a guide and porter, because that's when you get to know your guide and porter who are locals. You get to know other locals and you really get an experience of knowing people. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's to meet you as a traveler. I don't care about groups and cloning mm -hmm. together with, I'm like, it's just me and my husband or maybe just a couple of people if we have to, uh, but I don't want to have to do with any other tourists from all over the world. I'm like, no, that's not why I'm here. Otherwise I would go to Australia or somewhere else, but I want to go to wherever mm -hmm. I'm going. And so getting to know people brings me back to the village. Tell me or tell us about one experience that you've had there while you're at the village that just stuck out from anything else that you experienced there. Uh, probably spending an afternoon with Raj's family. Um, they had one of the nicer homes in the village because he'd been uh, guiding for five years at that point and had kept sending money home. So they had really fixed up their home. So it was a two-story home with a lovely front yard and uh, i spent the afternoon and i met his sister his parents his grandmother um and they made me a lovely meal and we just you know I, they couldn't speak to me and i couldn't speak to them raj did some translation but it was just really neat to be part of the culture and his dad was sitting there making uh, bamboo uh, slicing bamboo to weave into rope, to, uh, no, for thatch. He was he was fixing up the roof uh, over where they keep the buffalo. Every family has a buffalo for milk. And so he was doing that and mom was grinding rice down to, to make rice flour. Um, grandma was just resting. She wasn't feeling too well. His sister was uh, pregnant with her second child. So I got to know the first one. And she had a very Nepali dress on, but it also had a pocket where she had her cell phone. So, you know, there's this, you know, now, now, and uh, what it's like, it's changing very rapidly, but not so much in the villages. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, if it you, made me feel very, very welcome. And if it know? takes you seven hours to get there, I mean, not yeah. everybody is willing or physically able to do a trek like this. And that's very strenuous and, and, what are some of the things that you encountered, like uh, how how hard it is to trek and dealing with altitude, um, you know, nausea maybe from the altitude. So tell us more about like what you experienced physically while you're romping around there. <laughs> well, in the village, um, it's really about the same altitude as where I live, which is at 5,000 feet at our mountain at home. But when you go on the tracks and get up, Usually it hits me around 12,000 feet and I have had to take altitude medication for three days a couple of times. Um, a lot of the companies say, you know, take half a pill every day on the way up and blah, blah, blah. And I, I just don't do that. I don't need to. Mm -hmm. I generally, um, if you get nausea or loss of appetite, which is highly unusual for me, I love to eat. So, uh, and headaches and I got some very bad headaches so you rest a day you don't go any far further up see how you feel and take the altitude meds and then twice this happened I went over the high pass once at 17,600 the next next at 17 on another trip and then took the altitude med on the way down for a day or two and that was it so 
Yeah, but you always have to have it with you and you always have to be aware of what the signs are and that you and your partner and your guide should be watching. So like the first time was on the Annapurna circuit at 12,000 and I got these horrible, horrible headaches and you know, Tylenol and Advil and everything didn't do anything. And so Raj was our guide and he just said, you know, we need to stay here for a day, which is the beauty of not being in a large group. We stayed for the day. I took the medication. I started to eat, you know, some clear broth and stuff. And then by the next day I was ready to go ahead. So, yeah, I, we experienced, um, this kind of altitude when we went to Peru, when we were hiking Machu Picchu mm -hmm. and uh, my husband was really down for the count and they, but we traveled with a larger, larger group. It was like 10 of us. I mean, that's mm -hmm. from in my point of view, it's large. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was really affected. I mean, I felt it and we drank the cocoa tea, which after, mm -hmm. after a while, it just is gross because it's the taste. I'm like, I don't want to have any for cocoa tea. <laughs> um, but it's like you, you know, drank a lot of water and just rested and, and waited and just let the body get used to the altitude. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that is the other thing, which is why you have to be used to carrying a good day pack when you're going to altitude and at altitude, you have to drink two liters of water a day. So two big water bottles, one on each side, you've got to have those with you all, you know, all through the day. Um, yeah, that's so they add a lot of weight, actually. So you have to really be ready to practice carrying that. Yeah. But where do you get the water? Oh, um, you can get water anywhere in Nepal. Uh, you can get bottled water, but it's expensive and it's, you know, too much plastic. If you take your own Nalgene water bottles that you can get at with the States, REI, and in Canada, the Mountain Equipment Co-op, you just take two of those and you take water tablets. Yeah. And you take the purification tablets and they have to be in for an hour, I think, before you can drink the water. Mm -hmm. But there's no shortage of water in Nepal. There's waterfalls and rivers everywhere. Okay. Yeah, because that's always my concern of getting diarrhea when water is not kosher. Yeah. And, you know, on all those trips, we've never been sick. We're very careful, but we've never been sick. The other thing is we don't eat meat while we're trekking because the refrigeration is so bad. Um, you don't eat chicken and stuff. You wait till you get back to the city. And and Raj even says we shouldn't eat eggs. He says, if you can't see the chickens, don't eat the eggs. Well, because? God because they, won't, they won't be fresh. If you can't see chickens there, then the eggs have come from somewhere else and they've been carried on some porter's back for three, five days, what, in no, and maybe in a lot of heat, so. Oh, this is a good tip. I didn't think about that one. You get, <laughs> It get kind of sick of veggie curry, but that's the way it is, you know, rice and veggie curry. It's not going to kill you. Basically a vegetarian diet. Yeah. Oh, and um, their national dish, which they eat twice or three times a day, is dalbat, which is rice and uh, kind of a lentil soup. And it's delicious. You don't have, I mean, the lodges now have all kinds of different choices, but dalbat's really good and it's good for you. So what about vegetables? Is there plenty of vegetables? Um, plenty of, but not a lot of variety. Okay. It depends on where you are. There'll be cabbage, um, gosh, carrots, potatoes, lots of potatoes. Aloo is potato, yeah, lots of potatoes. Luckily, I love potatoes. Veggie fried potatoes is one of my favorite lodge dishes, so. They're very good, yeah. I'm, I like all this food. I mean, we're, we're eating meats and stuff. We're, I mean, red meat rarely. We must, mostly <laughs> fish and chicken, but I'm, Bringing, I just made a, a really good lentil dish the other day. I was thinking yeah. Yeah, it was really good and it's very meaty and hearty. And yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, Patty, when you're not in your tent, in your book, you talked about um, you slept in a trekking tea house in the Kingdom of Upper Mustang. And I'm not really sure. I had to look up where all this is. So guys, if you have no clue where Patty is talking about, you gotta buy her book because there's a great map of all the places that she's been to and what, what she's talking about in her book and what we're also talking about today. So you can orient yourself <laughs> where that is. But she was in this tea house. And tell us about the tea house experience. Uh, the bad one? <laughs> bad one oh and I hear something like not just like life is good like come on give us some of the real stuff okay there was one 
that uh, I think Raj got me this room because it was beside the washroom. And when you're drinking all this water, you have to sometimes I have to pee at night, right? So um, <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was kind of a storeroom turned into a with one bunk. And there was bags of grain at the foot of the bed. And I thought I could hear mice. And <laughs> there was um, the ceiling above was not closed in. So it was um, be beams and kind of straw packed and stuff. And I, I just thought there's going to be bugs coming down on me at night. So I really closed up my sleeping bag almost totally to let my nose out. <laughs> it was, you know, but most of the tea houses are fantastic. They're, I mean, they are just, you know, bunks with a foam mattress and a table between two bunks, but really they're fine. You know, um, this one was particularly bad. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I got out of there as fast as I could. There you go. Now, on your travels, you, <laughs> you saw incredible monasteries and buildings and uh, I mean, I looked at some of, uh, not some, I looked at all of the pictures on your website of that you took about the people the environment uh it's just so your photography really brings this culture so much closer to us and like i said i read in your book a lot of the things that we talked about today and um so when you're traveling when you see all these things how do you feel about this uh, um you have to i have to stop myself and remember where I am um, when I'm actually walking. I, I must say I, I, I use walking poles and I look at my feet a lot because a lot of the trails are high on one side and a big drop off of a thousand feet on the other. So obviously you have to pay attention. I stop every 30 steps and just stand and look and try to remember where I am. And I keep my camera around my neck. It's a small camera. And so I can take photos all the time and then remember to write about all of those things at night, how I felt when I was looking. It's both of us, my husband and I just love being in the mountains and love being in the wilderness. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's a very special place. Now, since this is a podcast for women, how were you able <laughs> to connect to other women, if at all possible, given the language barrier? Um, Mostly it was with the teachers in the village. Um, that was a frustration. Uh, I wanted to be able to speak to more women and Raj was a great interpreter. He knows English really well, but it's not quite the same when you're having a man ask questions, particularly in, a, in that kind of country. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, sometimes I would just go and if we got into a village and it was late afternoon, I would go and sit in the square and just wait and the kids would usually come because you're a curiosity. And then their mothers would come too. And, the, and I would, by nodding and indicating, um, ask if it was okay to take pictures of the children or ask, could I take pictures of them? And then they would, uh, you know, you can communicate a little bit. There was one, in, one lady in particular who was the grand, uh, grandmother in one of the lodges and I really wanted to talk to her but it just the opportunity didn't come up it was her son that i was interviewing so yeah, yeah. mostly the teachers though i could i could um even though sitala was the only one that had some english really just by the kind of things you're doing in the classroom together or watching each other you could have some communication mm -hmm. now since your single trip you and barry have been back correct yes mm -hmm. And the little town also went through a massive um, earthquake. Earthquake, thank you. Thanks for the word, a massive earthquake. Tell us what happened there and, and what, what, what your mission, you and Barry, you established a nonprofit. Talk a little bit about this, what you've already accomplished in, and about this, this earthquake. Okay, well, um, the earthquake affected the village I was in. Raj's family home went to dust. Um, but it was a next village where they had asked me for help to build a school just before I left that area. And I was the first foreigner to build, to visit the village because it's way off the trekking routes. And they had toured me around and showed me this old school that was falling down around the kids. 
and they asked for my help. And I thought they must think all North Americans are wealthy or something. And I felt like an imposter, but I listened and took notes and everything. And then we left and went trekking and I got advice from lots of the monks and entrepreneurs and people that I met. And then when I came home, I kept thinking, you know, what can we do? There must be something we can do to help these people. And so we formed a nonprofit called Nepal One Day at a Time, the same as the book, with my husband and I, another teacher, a banker and a paramedic. That's our team. And uh, we started to fundraise. And then that was, um, I came home in June 2014. In April 2015, while all this is going on, the earthquake hit. And the epicenter was those two villages all that area. So in the village that had asked for my help, every home and the old school were ruined. Four people were killed. The principal of the school was buried for four days, I think, but they, they got him out. Um, and they didn't get any help from the government. Most of the world aid was close to Kathmandu. And these guys are so far out. And Dear, when the earthquake happened, I got an email that morning from one of my friends saying, did you see there was an earthquake in Nepal? What do you, you know, do you know anything about it? And of course, I went online right away. And thank goodness for say what you will about Facebook. But I could get in touch with friends right away and find out who was OK. And, you know, luckily, all of my friends are OK. But 8000 people were killed and 21000 injured. And so. Uh, Barry put together his slideshow and we had a big slideshow night here at Silver Star and made our first thousand dollars to start funding to build a school and help people. And then I joined the Rotary Club. Well, I actually had joined earlier, but I brought the idea to my Rotary Club here. They got on board and the Rotary District and lots of schools and friends and family all donated. So. In 2017, we went back to open the first floor of the school. And then we went on a big trek after that, too. Um, Barry and I went on a three week trek in the top altitude and 17,000 feet after that. So I was over 70 at the time. How old are you now? 74. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, you're doing all these long trekking and you're staying fit in mind and body. You're helping other people. You're such an inspiration. And well, you just you just keep putting one, one foot in front of the other. There's lots of times I'd rather sit down and do nothing, believe me, but you know, but I have this very active husband, so I have to keep up with him. Yeah. <laughs> Is he younger than you? Yes, one year. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's like uh, my husband is three years younger, so I always refer to him as my young boyfriend. He says, yeah. no, 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 we're married now, remember? <laughs> now, Patty, what do you hope to inspire with this interview, which hopefully a lot of people will listen and watch as we're also uh, making a video of this, and your mission? What is? What do you want to inspire others people to do or, yeah? Well, I want to inspire others not to give up to get out there and do whatever you can to stay fit and healthy and if you can volunteer whether it's locally or internally, there are so many opportunities i particularly love helping kids but there's all kinds of people that need help and assistance so and i really want to inspire women in particular to get out of your comfort zone you not to get a shower for five days or two weeks you live through it um and the rewards are incredible the people you meet the places you can go and the things you can see um and i want to inspire people obviously to buy my book because all the profits go back to education in nepal um, this book you know is it's their story it's my story but it's their story and what i learned from them and uh you know, usually when you make a donation to a charity or a nonprofit, you feel good. Well, this time you feel good and you get a book. <laughs> so, so where can people find you and buy your book, Patty? <laughs> um, it's uh, Nepal One Day at a Time. It's on Amazon.com and .ca. If anybody wants to get in touch with me through my website, um, PattyShalesLeftCoast.com, they can find it there. Um, 
but if you get through, if you want to um, buy it from me directly, then nobody gets a cut. It, you know, all the money goes to uh, goes to Nepal. And we work with a an established uh, NGO in Kathmandu, mm -hmm. so the money goes to them, and they work with the education. And what if you wanted to get involved or or be part of your nonprofit? What do have people to do then? Uh, get in touch through the website. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we should have been in Nepal right now, if not for COVID. Um, the Rotary Club, after we built the school and the two toilet blocks, there's eight classrooms. Our next project was to build two homes because a lot of the homes have not been rebuilt. It's a subsistence farming area. People don't have the money to rebuild and they're living under tarps and you know corrugated tin roofs. So um, we were going to be there and we were raising funds for that. Um, if anyone was interested in that part of it as well, we're, we're hoping to be able to go next fall. Now, you're also uh, coaching people, as if I understand this correctly, on how to trek? Um, I advise people, anyone that wants to know about a good company, we, we have a very trusted company called Ace the Himalaya, and they also have the NGO, Sambab Nepal. Um, because the owner of Ace the Himalaya came from Ratmate village and he left Ratmate village when he finished grade 10, that's finishing high school in Nepal. He walked, I think eight hours to get a bus. He'd seen a bus, but he'd never been on one. Then he had to <laughs> take two buses to get to Kathmandu and he was so sick on the bus that he said, I, had, I couldn't go home because I couldn't get back on the bus. He started out as a tea boy, then he became a guide, a porter, and then he became a guide, and then he got some sponsorship from, I think, someone in Australia to help start the company, and then he started the NGO to give back to his area. And wow. he's he's also a Rotarian in, at the Rotary Club of Mount Everest. So, you know, it's incredible. It's him that's pulled this together, really. And he's got people in Switzerland, in the USA, Canada, Australia, all working to help the area, to help Gorka. Yeah. So we, of course, we leave links for all the links that Patty just mentioned in the show notes. So you guys can easily get in touch with her, look at her website, get more information. And, you know, when we think of COVID and Patty's interview will air in March because we're way ahead in hiker schedule with with recording but I met Patty on Facebook in Brandon Bouchard's group uh, helping entrepreneurs business owners and we all were encouraged to tell something about ourselves and Patty told <laughs> a little bit about herself and I said I want you on my podcast. Will you come? We have to wait till March, but you probably leave again when COVID is over. And she says, yeah, I'm only here because of COVID. So COVID has some positive things. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have never met Patty. I'm sure of it. So and I would never have met you. So there you are. <laughs> so this, this was a blessing in disguise or whatever you say in English, but it was just such a pleasure and that you also said you wanted to come on the show and sharing all your advice and stories mm -hmm. and inspiring people with that as we get older, it doesn't mean we have to sit in a rocking chair and wait till whatever happens or let life pass us by, as I say. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, Patty, what is one thing that you wish, and you've been interviewed all over the place and talked to all kinds of people, what do you wish you would have been asked by anybody else interviewing you? Is there something that you say, gosh, I wish they asked me that? Oh, a good one to remember is my motto, which I learned from a gentleman called Ralph, who skied at the Hollyburn ski area, cross country area out of Vancouver. When I was still teaching, I would train at night and weekends and Ralph when he was 90 would ski every day and he would say even in the rain and it rains when you ski in Vancouver he would say stay positive and keep moving baby <laughs> and I always keep that with me when I'm 
a little tired, you know, at the end of a tracking day. <laughs> Stay positive and keep moving, baby. Baby, I love that. That's so that's such a guy thing to say. It's like thirty really hearty. <laughs> well, actually, you know, he was I think he was Austrian. He was a prisoner of war in the Second World War. He had a very difficult time. Oh wow. But after he came to Canada and he just he's just that kind of guy that kept positive. That is too cute. I love it. So the, now you guys know something that Patty has not been asked before. And I thought, you know, you I can tell so many stories. And sometimes we afterwards we say, oh, I wish they'd ask me this. And I try to prepare for all this. But then I thought, why don't I just ask her? That's a good question. <laughs> Patty, it was a pleasure getting to know you, listening to your story. And I was able to read part of your book. It's so inspiring. And as a traveler myself, I enjoyed that. We haven't made it to that part of the world yet, but it doesn't mean that we can't go. We have to just stay a little lower in altitude because my husband is so responsive to the altitude oh. that, that he says, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. Raging headaches, throwing up. She's like, that's not fun. But there are all kinds of different tracks and they don't always have to be at a high altitude. Yeah. It's just wonderful. You can do lower altitude through all the villages and meet the people. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's been a real joy to meet you. My pleasure. And listen, guys, if you want to reach out to us, we have all the links in the show notes and reach out to me on social. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and everywhere else at Heike Yates. And let us know if you want to contribute to the story, you want to contribute to the nonprofit, you want to share something that really inspired you through Patty's story today. So connect with me and I will pass it on to Patty because I know now how to find her. So <laughs> thanks for being here and we'll see you next time. Bye.